0: Welcome to this episode of Woman to Woman podcast series. Our guest today is Adanta Onono. She is a nonprofit executive leader with expertise in project management at the intersection of workforce development and higher education and has a strong passion for helping others achieve their full potential. Currently, she serves as the chief program officer at the COOP Careers, a nonprofit focused on overcoming underemployment for recent first generation college grads through digital skills and peer connections. Adanta is an alumni fellow of the Surgeon Institute and UMass Boston's Emerging Leaders Program is on the board of Drivet School. Additionally, Adanta is a member of the National Coalition of 100 Black Women's Oakland Bay Area Chapter and a member of the Women's Network Chief. She's also a dance enthusiast, spin devotee and dedicated to running a half marathon each year. Hi Adanta, welcome to Woman to Woman podcast. So happy to have you with us here today.
1: Thank you so much, Tavia. So happy to be here. You are based in California, actually very close <laughs> to me. Yes. So I've been here for about five and a half years. So I actually grew up in Arizona and then uh, went to the East Coast for uh, undergrad for college and then stayed there a number of years, um, survived all the snow on the East Coast and spent a little over 10 years there and then uh, moved out to the West Coast, about yeah, five and a half years ago. So it feels now like home because it's been a while. But I've gotten to move around from coast to coast over time.
0: Growing up, what were some of the things that people who really inspired you?
1: Yeah, definitely. Oh, I have so many. Mm-hmm. Well, first say so definitely my parents. Um, my parents are both immigrants. My mom is from Uganda, my dad's from Nigeria. And they both just from day one have just demonstrated such a strong work ethic. And I think that is something that is like in the blood of, and the genes of me and my siblings. And I think we've shown up and demonstrated that same thing. And they consistently were working um, a number of hours late nights to ensure that we were set up for success when we thought about our own lives, our own careers. And so that was just always so inspiring to me that they were always putting us first and just thinking about doing as much that they could to ensure that we would have lives that again, would help us live fulfilling and successful um, lives and be able to get into careers that we were really excited about. So I think First and foremost, them. And then I'll go to my siblings. Me and my siblings, I'm the oldest of four. And um, I have a brother and then a sister and then another r- brother right below that. And we're extremely close. And each of them has found their own career path. We all do very different things. Each of them continue to inspire me, which is their passion, their drive, their commitment to their work. Um, and so I think we both have this like friendly challenge with each other, um, but also we inspire each other on the different ways that um, we show up just like fully compassionate and um, fully passionate about what we do.
0: So you went to Boston University and you did international business. I did. That's a pretty complicated major to start thinking about at a young age. What was it that you wanted to do as a kid and how did you end up in an international business major?
1: Yes. No, that's a great question. So as a kid, I actually wanted to be a pediatrician, which was like a very specific thing for a young child, but I always loved helping others. And I would go to the doctor and I would see that my doctor, my pediatrician would help me. So I was like, I want to do what this person does. They make sure that I'm okay. And they give me lollipops. So that's initially what I wanted to do. And for so long, I would talk about, yes, I want to be a pediatrician. And of course my dad loved that. He's like, my daughter wants to be a pediatrician. Then I learned about, um, all the other aspects that come with going into medical school and particularly how you might have to work with blood. And I do not do well with blood. And I remember back in the day when the commercials for Nick Tuck would come on and I would like cringe and I was like, oh no. And I started realizing more and more that I actually don't think the profession of medicine is for me. And so then I actually, another space I was always really excited about was just politics. I'm at a young age. I was also in a circle of friends that were very politically active um, and started thinking that maybe one day I would wanna go into politics that's actually what initially then kind of drew me to this kind of international relations space. So when I first went to college, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. I was declared, or I had an undeclared major. And then I started thinking maybe I want to do something around like international politics relations. I've always been fascinated with other cultures, which I think a lot of that comes from my parents. It was actually an advisor in college at one point that I had shared. I think I want to study international relations with a minor in business because I had always heard from family, friends and uh, others in my and mentors that having a foundation in business was was really valuable. So I was like, great. I would love to have that minor in business. And then this advisor said, you know, our business school actually has an international management major that kind of combines the two things that you're saying you're wanting to do. And so why don't you consider doing that? And so I went into, you know, continued into our from uh, school of business at BU, which used to be called SMG at the time, the school of management and studied business and then had that focus within international management.
0: That's a very interesting way of, you know, finding the major. You ended up in a nonprofit. How did that happen?
1: Because that, that's quite quite a distance. It is quite a distance, yes. You know, I end up, I'm studying international management. I'm studying business. And at the time, you know, getting ready to graduate from college. And I was like, I would love it if a US company paid me to travel around the world to represent their product. Like that was like my dream. Um, and I think all of us have dreams when we're about to graduate college and then our dreams are quickly crushed and you have the reality check. And so during my uh, senior year, I started applying to different opportunities that were focused on business. And a lot of programs at the time when I was graduating, a lot of these big companies were starting to have these like business rotational programs um, in recognition that a lot of baby boomers were gonna start retiring. And they wanted to kind of have this new influx of uh, leaders that would come in and rotate from different business lines and eventually grow within those companies. And so um, I ended up, you know, again, I had this idea that I would travel around the world and represent a U.S. product and instead ended up right outside of Boston in Worcester, Massachusetts, about an hour outside of Boston at an insurance company at their headquarters. So very different experience, but it was a business rotational program. That experience was really transformational for me for a few different reasons. One is it helped me better understand how business operates, because again, in this program, we had an opportunity to really understand different elements um, of the business. Uh, Two, each person in the program was placed within a specific department um, for the first like year and a half or two. And I was placed within the claims department. And initially I was so upset about this. I was like, I don't wanna be on the phone all the time. Like, I do not wanna be doing this. I wanna be like out talking to people, right? I wanna be traveling. Um, most of the time I'm sitting at a desk and talking to people on the phone who are really angry, right? But that was a really critical experience for me. One, I got to work with just some really incredible people and we I, I got to work under some incredible leaders to help me understand what effective people management looks like and what effective operations look like. But two, I got to understand customer service and really how to deal with difficult customers And challenging customers and frustrating customers and de-escalate situations. Um, And that was really important as it ended up in other elements of my life. Um, But then finally, the other thing was that this company I worked with was really big on giving back to the community. And so I started actually getting involved with the United Way campaign through our organization, um, through Big Brothers Big Sisters, through an organization called Collegiate Success Institute. And so I started volunteering on the side with all these different Programs that this company worked with, and started to find this passion for working with young adults and working with young people, um, and volunteering. And I know I had been pretty active in volunteering and in my community in college, but this was kind of like this next layer. Like I was choosing to do this kind of outside of my day to day work. And so when friends and family would ask me how life is, I would like rave about these young people I was working with. I was like, oh, listen, like this one woman I was working with was doing this six months ago, and look at her now. She's coming for college, and my friends and family like that's great but like how how's work I was like oh it's I mean it's whatever but like listen this young person and I would just talk about all these amazing people and it was some mentors who started saying to me you know I think you're in the wrong field I had never allowed myself to think that part of it as I said I'm the oldest of four and there was also a lot of responsibility just financially for me thinking about with my family at the time and wanted to ensure that like this path I was on would set me up for success and it seemed like working at this insurance company there was like, a clear path of like you work really hard and you keep kind of moving up and you keep making money and you'll have a stable career. The idea of leaving that seemed really scary. But the more and more I started exploring it and started talking to more mentors and friends and started networking um, within the nonprofit space, I realized that there could actually be a career that would allow me still to be financially stable and also able to do something I'm really passionate about and that I love. And so through my journey of networking, I stumbled across um, a national nonprofit called Year Up, became a volunteer for that organization. And as I got to know them, I said, this is the organization I want to work for. It blended my background in business and supporting young adults and uh, getting into careers in tech and um, also supported my love for working specifically with young adults. And I felt like for me, that sweet spot was that 18 to 24-year-old range. And so took that leap of faith and went from insurance and somehow convinced you up that my background in insurance and business could translate and those skill sets could translate into at the time being um, on the recruiting team uh, a year up at their headquarters in Boston. And then from there, it's kind of history. And I've, I've been a nonprofit since.
0: such such an awesome story. And I think one of the things that really stand out for me is the fact that you're able to convince them that what you had done in the insurance industry was relevant for a nonprofit. I don't know how you made that connection, but congratulations. One of the biggest issues, especially women have, is we only apply for jobs that we think we are 100% fit for. And we have a hard time even articulating how what we have done in the past is relevant to whatever we really want to do so were there certain things or an approach that really helped you figure out you're like okay i really want to be here and this is all i have done so how did you really map that out and you know what helped you convince them that this skill set was relevant to what they were looking for
1: yeah that's a great question so Um, I think there's a few things that I did that were really helpful specifically to make that, that transformation. So one is I networked a lot. And I wanted to both, I wanted to make sure the move I was making from the private sector to nonprofit made sense for me. And so I was actually pretty picky in terms of my research, connecting through LinkedIn. I know, I remember I would like reach out, I would see different people's profiles and I would send them a little note, letting them know, like, I'm currently working in the insurance field. I'm looking to make a switch to the nonprofit. And I would love to hear, I saw that you did the same thing, would love to maybe spend 15 to 20 minutes hearing about your journey. Would you mind taking the time. And there's many people who didn't respond, but I actually had several people who did respond who I had no connection with, but who actually took that meeting and helped me better understand what their path was and how they made that transition. So I think that was one is like utilizing my network, but especially in LinkedIn and then within like family, friends and reaching out and seeing if there was anyone who could connect me to folks that they knew in nonprofit to understand what that experience was like, or what that journey could look like. So I could have a sense of what my career path might look like. Two is in, when I was in college, uh, I had a few work study jobs and one of them actually was within the career center at the business school. So that was actually also really, uh, Wonderful, because I got to like understand really quickly, like how to read cover letters and resumes and how to ensure that those were as impactful as possible in terms of messaging. And so through the experience, I remember one thing that I learned, you want to look at the actual skills that the role is asking and see how those skill sets overlap across different jobs. And so that's exactly what I did is I said, okay, the current job I'm in, and at the time when I started looking for nonprofit roles, I now was in actually the IT department within a like automation consulting role within that department. Um, But I was in that role, I was actually going out to the community and going out to different insurance agencies and doing some like consultative technology projects for them, troubleshooting. And and so I started looking at some of those similarities of like, okay, at this nonprofit in this recruiting role, you need to be managing a portfolio of community-based organizations and partners. And in my current role at my insurance company, I was managing a portfolio right, of insurance agencies. And so in that, right, there's these skill sets that are aligned. You're managing a portfolio, you're managing relationships, you're building new relationships and having to maintain existing relationships. And so like that was like kind of point one, right? Point two was you need to be able to build a sustainable growth strategy as we think about scaling our work for and within nonprofit. At our insurance company, we are always looking at how we can increase premiums, really understand how we can add more value to the customer. And there was a lot that I had learned through that experience. And so again, I started just looking through all these different um, lines and bullet points for the nonprofit role and seeing the actual skill sets. There was actually a ton of overlap. And so once I was able to make that connection, when I then wrote my cover letter, and then when I went to interviews, I was able to explain really directly that experience that I had. And then finally, I knew as I shared that I wanted to switch to nonprofit, and I had demonstrated my commitment at that time to wanting to be within the nonprofit space through volunteerism. So as I mentioned, I had had volunteered with the United Way campaign, with Big Related Sisters, with an organization called Collegiate Success Institute. You know, Year Up could see that I genuinely and I truly was committed through that additional work. And then on top of that, before I actually applied to Europe, I started being a volunteer. So I actually volunteered and mentored a student at Europe for several months before I actually applied. And that further helped them understand my commitment to their organization. And that experience also got me to get to know their organization more to like reaffirm that this is where I wanted to be. So I think those are three things that I did that were that were really strong. The last thing I'll share, and this goes back to that networking piece, and this, I think, is just the power of LinkedIn that people sometimes take for granted. I remember when I discovered Year Up. I went on LinkedIn. I typed in Year Up. And then it showed me anyone who I knew who had any connection to Year Up. One of the professors that I was a TA for in college, I saw that she had a lot of connections to people at Year Up. So I reached out to her and we had been in touch informally over since I graduated. And I said, you know, I'm interested in learning more about this organization. Is there anyone in your network there that you think might want to take a few minutes to speak with me? And so she connected me to one of uh, the individuals that she knew. I met him for coffee and I brought my resume to that meeting, he saw my resume. He marked it up and said, "Okay, at Europe, we prefer you know education here, and we prefer you know this part work here, and you know emphasize more of your volunteers in here." Um, so he he edited my resume. He said, "If there's any rules that you want to learn more about, just like let me know, and I'm happy to to share more." And then by the way, two weeks from now, we have a Europe graduation, which is when all of our students walk across stage and a lot of our partners are there, all of our staff are there, and it's a great opportunity for you to come and network. And so I took them up on the opportunity. I showed up to graduation, didn't know anyone, and networked. And it's like the moment that pit in your stomach where you're like, okay, I don't know anyone. Am I gonna like walk into the room? Who do I say? What do I say? But I just walked in and started going from different tables, just introducing myself, sharing why I was there. I'm interested in learning more about this organization and thinking of switching my career path from private sector to nonprofit. That evening is actually when I signed up to be a Europe mentor. uh, Every single person I met that day, I connected with them on LinkedIn the next day. And I sent every single person a thank you note, every single person a thank you note. And one of those people who I sent a thank you note is a person who about six months later hired me to work at Europe. So we had stood in contact and she said, you know, today, right now is not a good time to connect. We're in our busiest cycle. Shoot me an email in three to four months. and Things will have calmed down and let's connect and then we'll see where we're at. So three to four months later, I reached out and she said, wow, perfect timing. We're actually hiring for recruiting manager. Let's jump on the phone and chat about it. And so we spoke. And then that's when I went through that process. And with all those other pieces I, I mentioned kind of led me to convince them that I was the right person for the role and that I could make that switch.
0: Thank you for sharing that. That's such an important aspect that sometimes we don't realize how important it is. And I think the fact that you sent a thank you note The power of thank you notes, I think is so understated. Mm -hmm. Nobody realizes how important they are and following up, as you said, Mm -hmm. you know, if you hadn't followed up after that three months, you know, things would have been very different. So absolutely. Following up is so important. You mentioned a couple of things there, which absolutely fascinate me how networking can do so much for you, but we do not pay enough attention on that. We're Mm -hmm. always busy doing things and we don't spend the time or take out the time to build that network to find the network and also to nurture the network it's not just you know connecting but do you follow up? Do you keep up with them? Are there certain things that have helped you do that or is that something that comes very naturally to you?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I love that you asked that question because um, I agree. I think the power of networking is so understated. And even the current organization um, that I'm at, Co-op Careers, one of the big pieces that we talk about is the power of peer connections, right? And mobilizing our alumni network and social capital. I think folks often think of it as such like a scary thing. Like they hear networking and it's like, oh, I have to like talk to people and I don't know how to engage and how it feels so robotic, but it doesn't have to be. And I think, yes, there are absolutely pieces of networking that come naturally to me. I've always loved people. Anytime I take the like Clifton strengths, woo is always one of my strengths, which is all about like being really social. Like that feels much more naturally to me than I think it it might to other people. So I like want to name that. And I think networking, there are specific things that you can do, even if your natural instinct is not to go walk up to Someone in a room that you don't know. I think the first thing I've always thought about, again, and this is where I always refer back to both LinkedIn, but then the power of your community. So I often say that one of the reasons why I am where I am today is because of social capital and mentorship right? So I grew up in a community that did not look like me, right? My parents, they were like, I was kind of the guinea pig um, coming up as as the eldest. And there was a lot of things that we were learning trial by error, right? And when I was first applying to college, there were aspects of the financial aid process that we didn't quite understand, right? And it wasn't until a little bit later on um, when it was family friends who then said to my parents, hey, you know, here's something that you can do that'll help you through that process. I always think about if we didn't have some of those people in our community who are willing to help, and willing to share additional insights or information, we wouldn't know and I might be in a different place. So for me, I think what I've always thought about when we think about networking is one, asking for help is okay. And I think especially in communities of color, that can often feel really hard. I am constantly encouraging people to think about if you are wanting to say switch industries or going to a different field or going to your existing field, but you want to move up, it is okay. And I encourage you to like, feel comfortable asking for help and tapping into your network. And whether that is someone that you know at church that you think is in a job that you might want one day, whether it is your sister's cousin's best friend that you found out works at Google and that might be a place you want to work for one day, whether it's that you've gone on LinkedIn and you've seen someone's profile that you think mirrors the life the or the, the career path you are wanting to go into, it is okay to reach out. And you should never feel guilty or that you're bothering someone, right? Like we all are here like in this world to support and guide each other. And so you will, the the worst answer that you'll hear is no but you won't know until you ask. And as I said earlier, like there are people who I reached out to, especially cold, right? Reached out to who I never heard back from, but there are people who I reached out to cold who I did hear back from. And those conversations were so critical and were so valuable to me helping me understand. So I think that's one thing is like really starting to like pay attention to as you start to see people in your lives and say, oh, I'd love to like be in their role one day. Instead of just saying that, like, great. If you happen to be connected to someone that might be connected to that person, or maybe you don't know anyone who's connected to that person. But again, we have things like LinkedIn that allow you to just reach out to that person. How do you challenge yourself in that way and send a brief note? Like, again, hi, my name is so-and-so. And I'm thinking of switching into X career path. And I noticed that you made a similar switch. Would love just to take 15 to 20 minutes of your time to hear a little bit more about what that looked like. So I think that is like one thing I always tell people is asking for help and reaching out. Like the first thing is asking. Two is if someone does take the time to meet with you, send a thank you note. And again, it can literally be three sentences. It can be two sentences, but like, hi, so-and-so, thank you so much again for taking the time to connect with me earlier. I really value your time and look forward to staying in touch. One thing I always try and do at the end of networking conversations is ask, based off of what I'd shared with you today, is there anyone in your network or anyone else in your network who you think I would benefit from talking to. And often they have at least one person that they'll connect you with. And the more you do that, again, your network is continuing to build and build and build and build. And then I think finally, the thing that people often have a hard time with is like, okay, I've networked. I've like reached out. I have a conversation. I sent my thank you note, but like now do I reach out to them every week? Once a month, once a year, like what is that like? For me, I don't think there's like any specific golden rule. What has worked for me is depending on the relationship, how kind of that conversation went, what the follow might need to be as it relates to what we discussed. I usually reach out every six months to a year and we'll just send a, a quick note either via LinkedIn or email, just saying, thinking of you, I hope all is well. Or, hey, in our last conversation, we were talking about what it might look like to be on a nonprofit board. And I'm now in a part of my life where I'm thinking I'm wanting to do that. Are you open to taking another like 15 minutes or 20 minutes to jump on a call to talk about that or to continue that conversation? But again, for me, I would say on average, it's every six months to a year that I'm just doing quick follow-up unless you're having a conversation, you had a network conversation with someone that is gonna require you to follow up more frequently because it's maybe about a job opportunity that is coming up on their team two months from now. But yeah, I would say those are primary things I think about as it relates to networking. And you also brought a really great point about mentors and mentorship. To
0: dig a little bit deeper on that, did you seek out mentors or how did you really Cultivate this group of mentors. They see you in a different light than we see ourselves, and they really help you. They're
1: your sounding board. Yes, and I always said mentor board because I often call it right my personal board of directors. So one thing I'll say is my mentors range from a ton of different people. I think when folks often think about mentors, they think of someone who has like number of years, either in age or of experience in them. Some of my mentors, that's absolutely the case, but some of my mentors are people who I've known my entire life or one of my best friends who I've known since kindergarten, right? What uh, a friend who I met through the world of dance that we now have careers intersect through when I was first going to college, one of my advisors who uh, continues to be a mentor to this, th- to this day. And so I think for me, when I have thought about my mentors over time and like my personal board directors, often the way I've cultivated them is as I started to understand where there might be overlap or connection. So for instance, one of my mentors when I was in college, um, I was a student advisor, so essentially an orientation leader for a summer, and I had a boss. And that boss was one of the first women of color that I had had the opportunity to ever work under. And that was a really important experience for me to have. And through that experience, one thing that I started to notice was that this boss supervisor was consistently giving feedback, was both sharing strength feedback, so I understood things that I was doing well, and also was really invested and committed to giving me growth area feedback that would help me be set up for success in my career. And that is something I hadn't quite gotten before, is like someone giving me like growth area feedback, like actually caring to sit down and say, you made this commitment to come to this meeting, and then last minute you said, I'm not available like five minutes before the meeting. Like here's why in a workplace that would not be appropriate. And initially, of course, it stung. I was like, what do you mean? Like, why am I getting that feedback? But like, I grew to learn and to understand, wow, this person cares so deeply that they're investing in giving me that type of feedback. And so I started then recognizing I could seek them out for other feedback. So when I had a project I was working on when I was in the business school and I was having uh, some challenges with some group dynamics, I then reached out to this person and said, hey, I would love just to get your advice on the situation. They sat me down, gave me that right? That guidance, that mentorship. And so I started finding that, like, there were these moments where I could start coming to this person for thought partnership. And that every time I'd reach out, and it would be probably, you know, once every few months, they were there to be able to provide me that instruction. And so while I never formally said, will you be my mentor, we naturally kind of formed that relationship where they kind of demonstrated interest in wanting to coach and guide and mentor me beyond me working under them. And then on top of that, I felt safe enough to be able to go to them for guidance and for tips and for support. And so I think that is like one example of like how over time I've cultivated mentors as I start to recognize in different spaces of my life, who was someone who I am noticing is willing to both tell me what I'm doing well and give me those strengths, but also someone who's invested in giving me growth area feedback, or provide me with insights or tips as it relates to my career. And I pay close attention to that because that means that they are understanding what I can bring to the table. And they're also understanding what else I can do to really live my full potential. And so those are the types of people that I've then really leaned on. I started to build that like trust and that relationship to follow up with again, as I shared, sometimes it's once a month, sometimes most of the time it's every six months or so. And I'm checking in to say, hey, we'd love to get your advice on X. Um, and so for me, that's how I really cultivated my board of directors. And I've also known that, that that team, like right, that board of directors has changed over time. So depending on where I am in my life, the people who are my like, core mentors at any given time at, at sometimes shift, right? Depending on where my focus is. When I was in the private sector, some of my personal board of directors looked a little bit different than when I got into nonprofit. And then when I first was entry level in my nonprofit, so my personal board of directors looked different than now my personal board of directors as a chief program officer at a national nonprofit. And so for me, I think that's also something to recognize is like your mentors can mold over time. You don't need to be following up with the same people every six months for the rest of your life. Some of those mentorship relationships will naturally fade and die as you move or as life experiences shift. And some of them might stay free forever. With you forever, and then others mold over time as you then step into new workplaces or new personal experiences um, within your life.
0: Were there situations ever where you felt where you felt you were not getting what you needed to because you were a woman, and how did you navigate those
1: situations? So yes, there's definitely, unfortunately, been um, experiences like that. So I think there's kind of two pieces. One is being a woman one is being a woman of color and then the final i think often is like age and people don't always talk about that in the workplace um but i think ageism exists and at both spectrums and all spectrums really i remember particularly when i worked in the private sector as i mentioned uh one of my final roles was going out to different uh, agencies i often felt that I was treated younger, right? I would often be told, like, oh, honey, you won't understand this, or honey, you ter- you're too ter- young to understand this. So, right, there'd be a conversation happening, and then all of a sudden I'd be othered within that conversation. It would always be really frustrating because then when it came to having really real and serious conversations, again, often either being talked over or being interrupted or being told, Hey, Dante, can you go get that thing for the fridge from the fridge for folks? Right. I think for me, how I've tended to navigate it over time. One is I like tell myself going into those spaces. Like I deserve to be there. I will like reframe that in my head because naturally when you have those experiences happen in your life, imposter syndrome starts to come in. And so I would think about, okay, what are the things that I can do that like recenter me and remind me that I deserve to be in that space and that my voice matters. And so sometimes it's like just putting on like some pump up music, like putting on some Beyonce and like that gets me going. And then I kind of center and like, okay, I'm gonna go into this room. And I know I deserve to be there. I'm going to be in that space and be present. I'm not going to make myself small. But other times it actually meant me being really firm at times. So if someone is interrupting me, me actually saying, hey, actually, do you mind if I just finish for a moment? And normally the person like doesn't realize that they've actually interrupted like, oh, I'm so sorry. Yep. Sorry. Go ahead. Often in our world, people, and especially, you know, we, we often, see this, is, this is a lot within dynamics with men, right? From jumping in, I would just say, hey, sorry, do you mind? Do you mind? Can I just finish for a moment? It just on a, and then just even that act of me having the confidence to do that, which shouldn't be the case, but often I noticed would kind of like invite this additional level of respect that people in the room have because they understand that I understand and I value my voice and I'm willing to to speak up and own that what I'm sharing will continue, right, until it's not fully done. So I think that is one thing that's really helped. Another is, and this goes back to like mentorships and finding champions in a space. I've also had people who, over time, if I'm in a space and someone interrupts me or someone jumps in, they've been like, hey, you know, actually, I think Adanta was saying something. Adanta, do you, do you want to go ahead and finish? And I've always admired how people have done that for me. And so I now try to be really conscious if I see that happening in other spaces, doing that for other people, um, and especially other women, because that's the space where I think we see this the most. And then I think the the final thing I think about as it relates to kind of being in spaces where I wasn't always being seen or heard or respected as a woman is thinking about how, if I feel like I'm not being heard, like maybe I've said something and then someone else says it and everyone's like, oh, that was so great, so-and-so. And And like, we all know that feeling where we're like, we just said that. Like I just said that. Um, I used to hold that in and it would just like boil up. And now I've gotten comfortable with saying, well, one moment. So I know about 10 minutes ago, I just said something similar and I want to see if there's maybe something that I shared that, resonated a little bit differently that felt different than what this person just said like i'll now kind of step into the conversation and i did i will say i did have one time where i did say that and someone said adanta everyone's like calm down adanta it's fine and that frustrated me even more because you know it goes back to everything we just shared but i have i think the biggest thing is i found my voice in saying i know i have to be here if someone's interrupting me saying hey do you mind just if i finish sharing, and then we can go over to you. And again, you most of the time folks like I'm so sorry, yes, go ahead. And that actually builds their awareness in the moment as well. But then two, if something has been stated that I have just shared, either I'll circle back to that in that meeting, or I might follow up with the person and just say, hey, I wanted to check in earlier today, so-and-so said X, about 10 minutes ago, I had said the exact same thing and it seems like it was missed. And I'm wondering if you had noticed that that happened. And again, a lot of the times I found that someone has said, oh, I honestly, I didn't even hear you say that. And so for me, I found that as much as I can, if I'm comfortable in meetings of being able to say like, hey, I know just a few minutes ago, I had just said something similar. Even just me stating that I think helps people understand, like I am here, you need to hear my voice when I'm talking. Please
0: listen. So that's, that's excellent advice. I've done so many interviews and this has come up so many times. It is something that we all deal with and mm-hmm. we all have come up with our own mechanism of how to deal with it. But uh, I feel sharing that advice with all of these young listeners we have right now is so important so they don't have to kind of work this through over the years. They at least no. have a package, whatever works best for them, you know, pick pick and choose. <laughs>
1: yes no I love
0: that you've worked with a lot of
1: women over the years are there certain things that you think hold us back I think one is boundaries as women I think in all aspects of our life not only in the workplace like there's there's so much that's expected of us right and we kind of have gotten used to just saying yes 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 and so when our boundaries are being violated, sometimes it's actually hard for us to realize that that's happening. And so again, that can be as simple as every time you're in a meeting and if you're the only woman in the meeting and everyone's like, oh, Adanta, do you mind taking notes for us? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Cause I just want to be easy, right? I want to be accommodating, I want to be easy. But all of a sudden, all the meetings, I'm default to being the note taker, right? I'm also the one that's in the follow up note. and those dynamics play out in ways that we sometimes don't realize. Um, And so I think one is like understanding and being okay with sitting boundaries, sometimes saying like, uh, no, actually so-and-so, are you able to do that for us today? Or if it's the end of the workday, and I think this also happens when women don't yet have kids, I think sometimes there can be an expectation That like, oh, you're going to keep working. You're going to keep working. Or a woman do have kids. You're going to keep working. But I need to, I need to go pick up my kid from daycare. Well, can't someone else in family do that, right? Or what I often think about is how do we as women in the workplace, like set our boundaries and know our worth and understand what our thing and be really um, intentional with what we're saying yes to. I think that's maybe the biggest thing is like being intentional at what we're saying yes to and not feeling like we have to say yes to everything to grow in our careers. So that's like one thing it's being very intentional and thoughtful and creating those boundaries. And I think that connects with this piece around, like uh, there's a quote that says, you know, make sure that by saying yes to other people, you're not then saying no to yourself. And so I often think about that of like, how as women can we get better at recognizing power of the word no and what that looks like and feels like for us, mm-hmm. um, which can be feeling uncomfortable in a world where we're used to just often saying, yes, 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 please, yes, I'm so sorry, right? And then the final piece, again, is this piece I just leaned into is what, I'm sorry or apologizing, at times, we like doubt ourselves going into conversations, these short phrases or words come into what we're going to say. Right before you go and speak, we might say, I'm not a great public speaker, but here I go, right? Or, so one of the things I think we should do is, and I'm, I'm so sorry, but, right? And so something that I know I've worked on over time is how do I eliminate some of those, I think that, or... I'm so sorry, and just say, go into public speaking without having to provide any context that like diminishes my ability or potential and let people be their own judge of if I'm a good or bad speaker. Why am I telling them that I think I'm a bad speaker going in? Or two, instead of saying, I think that, one thing we should do is, if I believe that this is the right path, when we start to say, I think, or I'm not sure, or um, right, that can start to make us diminish our own worth. And so one thing that I just encourage women to think about is go into that space and like, and again, imposter syndrome is so real. It is so real. We all suffer from it. Even in my career where I'm at, I still have moments of imposter syndrome, but the more we can, and part of it is like even like meditating, like going to spaces, meditating and practicing mindfulness. You can go into the headspace to know I deserve to be there. That can then allow you to start to kind of remove some of these filler words or remove some of these moments where we're almost like self-tabotaging ourselves by putting in Thoughts into people's minds that they might not have even been thinking about, such as, well, I'm not great at this, or I'm not sure if this is when we are sure. I think that is something that I would encourage all women to do is to really think about how they are re kind of training their brain through mindfulness and meditation, going into a conversation to so know their worth and be able to state that as fact and not be stating these things are undermining their value and their worth.
0: Excellent advice. Adanta, thank you so much for being here with us today. We really appreciate your time.
1: Thank you so much, Davila. This has been so wonderful. Thank you.